Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. So good morning, friends. Uh, I'm actually having to re-record this teaching uh, but if you have a Bible with you, if you turn to Luke chapter 24, uh, we are continuing on in our Bible in a Year series. Uh, but I want us to start today with a few short verses here uh, to begin with in Luke 24. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 24, and we will start in verse 13. Now, Luke 24 is an episode in the Gospels after Jesus has been crucified and then resurrected. And there's two disciples who are walking to a city called Emmaus, which is nearby. And there's this really interesting exchange that happens. Verse 13 begins, Now that same day, two of them, its disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then verse 27, here's the key. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now today, we, we want to look back at Genesis as we close out this portion of our Bible in a Year series. But we want to search for what Jesus says here. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was in the scripture, what was in all the scriptures concerning himself. The text says that Jesus explained what was in all the scriptures, that's including the books of Moses and the prophets concerning himself. And what exactly are the books of Moses? And where exactly in the books of Moses does Jesus come up? Is it really there? Because this is an interesting comment, isn't it? Maybe I'm alone, but for years, and often still the case, I read, I read or read through the books of Moses, which is another name for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think also here called the Pentateuch. Uh, or even read through the rest of the Old Testament. And I think uh, this seems so different than reading about Jesus. So where is Jesus in the books of Moses? And Jesus tells us that he's there, but is it true? Is he really even in Genesis, even in Deuteronomy? What about Ruth? What about 2 Samuel? Yes, he's there. Today, I, I want us to look at a few places uh, because I'm convinced that one, we... Many of us have, we've either been taught explicitly or we've implicitly learned and come to believe 
that the Old Testament is really like secondary to the New Testament. It's really, yeah, it's just second rate. And two, we really believe in many ways that the Old Testament is really only helpful background to the gospel, but it itself is it's bad because it is laws and we don't really like laws. And so the, we don't really necessarily believe that the Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures are part of the good news about God saving the world in Christ, but they are. Because if Jesus can be found in all the scriptures from Genesis all the way through, then nothing could be further from the truth. If Jesus is found from Genesis all the way through, then the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, are just as much a part of the gospel as anything else, and they're not this second-rate set of passages. They're crucial for us to learn and know because Jesus is there. So if you turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3, We've read this passage before, but I want to point something out that we haven't talked about in depth before. Genesis 3, you know the story from Genesis 1, God creates everything and it's good. And then Genesis 2, it's all good. Man shouldn't be alone. Man and woman are together with a purpose and mission. They're in a place characterized by God's presence. And then you get to Genesis 3, which is the fall. Adam and Eve, they distrust God. They disobey God. They trust the serpent instead. And then God says something simple and it's veiled and yet it's cosmically profound. Before we get any sort of statement about the ramifications for sin, for, for creation, for Adam and Eve, God speaks to the serpent. The judgment comes first to the serpent. Verse 14 it says, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God tells the serpent that there will be enmity, which is this word that means hostility or a conflict between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Now, if you, if you missed our teaching on the fall, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. And there we talked about some additional context, who this serpent is. It's not like this random talking snake. The serpent is Satan, the adversary, a character who appears over and over through the scriptures. And so God pronounces judgment over Satan, and he makes this interesting statement about offspring. Now, if you're an ancient Hebrew and you hear this story, the, the language of this passage, it sticks out like a sore thumb. But for us, it's easy to miss. What is it? Well, it centers around this really interesting word, zerah. The word offspring, it's the Hebrew word zerah, which, which can be equally translated as seed. And if you're an ancient Hebrew, the word zerah sticks out like a sore thumb because women don't have seed. Women don't have offspring. And throughout scripture, women don't have a seed. And this, in Genesis 3, is a unique instance where a woman is told that her seed is the one in view. The seed doesn't come from Adam, which is what you would expect the seed to come from. But it's the, instead, it's the women's, woman's seed who, who will have enmity with the serpent and the seed of the serpent. What, what this points us to is that somehow, some way, the seed is going to uniquely be from the woman. The, the woman's going to have an offspring, a seed, and this seed is going to have a conflict with the serpent and the seed of the serpent. But there's, there's this other layer because linguistically in the passage, something even more interesting happens. The language goes from offspring or seed, which is like in English, it's a collective singular. So it's kind of plural, kind of singular. We use the word seed in the same way. You can talk about a singular seed or throwing a bunch of seed. 
It's a collective singular. So it can refer to one or it can refer to multiple things, like one offspring or multiple offspring. But in the passage, we see that the seed is referred to in the very next line as a singular he. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's not just a group of descendants, but it's a singular offspring seed who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike the heel of the seed. So here's the imagery. The, the offspring or the seed who's uniquely from the woman, he will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. But in the process, the serpent will get a strike on the heel of this offspring. And there's clearly a difference in the magnitude of who does what, crushing head versus striking heel. But what happens when a really bad snake bites your heel? What happens? It's not good. So the seed crushes the head of the serpent, but the serpent wounds the seed in the process. Now, this is only page three of the Bible, and we have a promise about the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan, but be wounded in the process. And I bet that you have an idea as to who and what God might be talking about. Thousands of years before Jesus is ever born, this is the picture that we get. But this isn't the only place where stuff like this happens. And brothers and sisters, this, is, this promise of the seed, this is why genealogies matter. If you're, if you're like me, and you read through the story of the Bible from cover to cover, you get to a genealogy, and you're, you either do, or you're at least a, sort of tempted to skip it. Because you go, I, I don't understand who these people are, they're not important to me. But if you're trying to figure out where is this seed, where is it coming from, where is the offspring, who is it, who's it going to be, then you're automatically invested in finding out something about these genealogies. You read the story of Cain and Abel, the very next offspring of Adam and Eve, and you wonder, who is the offspring of the woman? Is it Cain? Is it Abel? Well, it can't be either, because Abel's now dead and Cain's a murderer. And then the story goes on, and you wonder, is it is it Noah? Well, no. Is it one of Noah's kids? No. Who is it going to be? And that pattern and genealogy keeps on going and you get to Abraham and guess what word pops up again in the promises given to Abraham? Zerah, seed, offspring. The promise to Abraham that we've talked so much about. Now we've, we've read this a few times. We've probably read this word dozens of times in our lives, but many of us just gloss over it. But it's so crucial to understanding this overarching story in Genesis in the Old Testament. We've read in the past Genesis 12 the promise to Abraham. And you know what happens in verse 7 of Genesis 12? After Abraham leaves home and he's trusting the Lord, he's following after him. Verse 6 of Genesis 12 says, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he, that's Abraham, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. To your seed, Abraham, I will give this land. I will give this promise to your seed. The seed is back. So the seed lies with the family line of Abraham. And this promise is reiterated to Abraham that his seed will inherit the, the promises given to him. This happens in Genesis 15. It happens again in Genesis 17. And then in Genesis 17, God even says that he will establish his covenant with the seed of Abraham's son, Isaac. So it's not just the seed of Abraham, it's also the seed of Isaac. And if you're not really excited yet, here is where it really gets good. 
we have this picture of a seed coming from a woman who will crush the head of Satan, who will inherit the promises of Abraham. And then the theme continues. Abraham has two sons. Who's going to be the seed? Carry the line. Is it Isaac or Ishmael? Well, it's Isaac. Then Isaac has two sons. Who's going to be the seed? Who's going to carry the line? Is it going to be Jacob or Esau? Well, we see this narrative underneath it all playing itself out over and over again. It comes from Jacob. Who's the seed going to be? Which of the 12 sons of Jacob is it going to be? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Who's going to inherit the promises given to Abraham? Who is going to bless the world? That's the promise given to Abraham. That through him, the world would be blessed. And then we keep going on in the story of Genesis. And you wonder, of these 12 sons of Jacob, who is going to be the one Who's going to be the seed? Who is going to bring this all about? Because the family is really screwed up. I mean, if you're trying to look through the 12, and you're trying to sort them out. There's not really a great candidate. The whole family, if you remember the story, they're threatened with destruction and implosion, whether it be because they sell off their brother Joseph or because they may all die of famine. But God preserves this family. He saves them and he brings them to Egypt where they can survive the famine. And you know what happens at the end of Jacob's life? Well, he takes time to bless his sons. And something very interesting for our purposes today happens. It happens in Genesis 49. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Jacob, an old man on his deathbed, he calls for his sons and he wants to tell them what will happen next. He's lived a long life with all sorts of troubles and difficulties and he looks at his sons individually and he gives them a blessing. He actually prophesies over them. So Reuben, he's the firstborn, he gets a pretty mixed one. And then Simeon and Levi go and their blessing's pretty mixed as well. And then we get to Judah. And I'll spare you the details and you can read back through Genesis, but but Judah, this man, is, is not exactly the model son. I mean, besides selling his younger brother into slavery, one of the few things that we know about him is that he slept with his daughter-in-law. And his only defense for this act, well, not only did he sleep with her, but then he also tried to have her killed to cover it up. His only defense for this act is that he thought she was a prostitute, which isn't exactly a good defense. So we don't know much about Judah, but the promise given to Judah is significant. And here's what Jacob says. Uh, to his son Judah on his deathbed. And remember, if you followed this whole offspring seed theme through the story, you have to be wondering which of the 12 sons uh, is going to carry the line. Who is the seed going to come from? Who's going to inherit the promises? Who is going to crush the serpent? Genesis 49, 8 says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, to whom it belongs, shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Woe. What a promise. Judah, your brothers will praise you, the scepter, which is a signal of kingship or royalty, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, this can be a potentially confusing metaphor, but often in the Hebrew scriptures, feet are a euphemism for a person's sexuality and the ability to make children. 
and their ability to make, you guessed it, offspring. So there will be a king from the line, from the descendants of Judah. And what kind of king will it be? Well, this is a king that will be in the future until whom it belongs shall come. And will just the obedience of Israel be his? No, the obedience of the nation shall be his. This king's not just a king for the land. This is a king for the nations of the world. I can only imagine that on that day that Jesus walked with Cleopas and the other disciple to Emmaus, and Jesus started explaining to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself, that Jesus started chronologically. And, and Jesus started with the promise of the, of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 that will crush the head of the serpent. And then Jesus told them about the seed who would inherit the promise of Abraham and be a blessing and inherit the land. And Jesus also probably mentioned that, that when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham had said, a lamb will be provided. But a lamb wasn't provided at that moment. A ram was provided. And that was just a holdover until the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world would be here. Until that lamb, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, comes to Jerusalem. And Jesus probably mentioned the smoking pot and the flaming torch that passed through the sacrificed animals. Tracy talked about it last week. Jesus probably pointed out to them that the flaming torch and the smoking pot, they passed through these sacrificed animals in, in a covenant ritual that said, if I, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, you can do this to me. And normally Abraham would have walked through first and then the greater party would have walked through second. But instead of Abraham walking through and God walking through, God walks through twice promising that no matter what, he would be faithful to the covenant, even at the cost of his own life. Jesus probably mentioned this promise given to Judah about a king from his line who would be a king that the obedience of the nations belonged to. And Jesus probably mentioned dozens, if not hundreds of other little notes in Genesis that I don't even know about. And I don't have time to go over today. You know what? It doesn't even stop in Genesis. See, we get to Genesis 49, like we just read, and everything points us forward. A seed will come, a king will come, and we're left wondering at the end of Genesis, who is this seed? Who is this king? And then you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it seems like Moses is a pretty good candidate. But he's not from the line of Judah, and he dies at the end of Deuteronomy without even entering into the land. And you know what? We're pointed forward once again. Earlier in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells us, he tells Israel that God will raise up another prophet like him. And then when Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34, we get this really interesting statement. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The promise in Deuteronomy 18 is there would be another prophet like Moses, but the, the statement after Moses dies is that since then, no prophet has arisen like Moses. It points us forward. Still waiting on the seed, still waiting on the king, still waiting on a prophet. Where are they? The people of Israel, they end up waiting thousands of years. And as readers, we wait hundreds of pages. And you get to Ruth. And you read about this Moabite woman who marries a descendant of Judah. And then you get to see the genealogy of David and you think, David, David's probably the one. He has to be it. 
And then you read First and Second Samuel. And David is God's anointed, but then David's a murderer. And he's an adulterer. And he's repentant and he's a good king, but he's not exactly commanding the obedience of the nations. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David receives a promise that his descendant will build a temple for the Lord. And this descendant will have an everlasting kingdom. So you get to David and David's experience points us forward. And hopefully you can see or feel this longing, this yearning over generations, over centuries. God, when will you be faithful to your promise from page three? And then you get to the gospel of Matthew, finally. Matthew 1 starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. The seed of David is here. The seed is uniquely born from a virgin woman. These threads come together in one person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus crushes the head of the serpent on the cross. Jesus defeats Satan on the cross, but he's wounded and he dies to be resurrected later as a victorious king to whom the obedience of the nations belongs. And Jesus becomes the means by which the whole world is blessed. And Jesus is the prophet even better than Moses. He's the fulfillment of the lamb that God would provide. He's the fulfillment of the priestly system. He is the great high priest. And Jesus is the promised, long-awaited Savior. Routinely, I hear this sentiment, which is that you can probably just skip reading the Old Testament. Just read the Gospels. You'll be fine. And I get where this sentiment comes from because the Old Testament's hard to read. It's boring at times. It's foreign to us. It often seems violent and backwards and maybe even pointless to us. I can't help but think, though, that we're missing out. We're missing out on the beautiful imagery of who Jesus is by doing that. I've heard people say we need to unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament. Or if you want to know what God is like, don't read the Old Testament, just read the New Testament. And I get it because Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. And Jesus is the perfect image of God. And if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. But Jesus didn't say those things. And the New Testament writers didn't say those things in some sort of vacuum, as if they don't have context. The New Testament assumes, the New Covenant assumes an Old Testament, an Old Covenant. God shows up as an Israelite, as a descendant of Abraham and Israel. He shows up in a specific context. And hopefully you can see that. And that we can actually read just Genesis and we get a good picture of God's rescue plan for the world. An offspring from a woman who will crush the head of the serpent and be wounded in the process. And this seed and offspring will inherit the promises of Abraham. And it'll be a king. There'll be a king from the line of Judah who will rule over the nations. Now, as I close, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you learn something in your head about Genesis and maybe just these passages about Jesus. But I'm hoping that three more things happen. First, I hope that we grow in our appreciation for God's faithfulness. I mean, look at what God has done. God made promises that you think, how could he ever fulfill that? Or you ask why, it seems like you're backed into a corner. How are you going to bring this about, God? You're using these people who keep screwing it up, and yet you're faithful. And God does bring it about. God is faithful. God works through this this marvelous tapestry of events and brings about the fulfillment of his promises over and over and over again. We see God is faithful. 
Second, I hope we get to see an example of God's patience. Now, I really wish God would do things like my microwave does. I mean, I put in two minutes on the microwave, and by a minute and 30 seconds, I am ready for it to be done. I mean, I was making tea the other day, and I put I didn't want to use the kettle because that would take too long, so I put water in the microwave for two minutes in a cup, and I just am impatient. I wait a minute, 30 seconds, and I am impatient. I want it now. But God's patient. He waits generations. He waits centuries. And he's going to be faithful to his promises, but he's not constrained to the time like we are. He's not constrained to time like we are. You and I, we're, we're constrained by time. We look at our lives and we know that, that we face our own mortality. We know our, be- our lives have a beginning and they will have an end. There's few things that are certain in this life, but those are two certain things. You'll be born and you will die. And so we look at that, we realize we don't have endless time, and so we look in frustration often and we say, God, when? Why is it taking so long? And I'm convinced that God uses that process to transform us, to work in us, and what reading through Genesis and the story of Abraham has taught me is that my timeline and my expectation is so much smaller, so much more narrow than God's. just is. He's working through much bigger things, much wider things than I will ever know. And what this builds in me is a a third thing, faith for God's yet unfulfilled promises. God has made promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And, and if I'm honest, I, I look around at the world, and I particularly look around in the USA, and I look around at my own life, I look into my own heart, and I think, God, I thought we'd be further along by now. I thought I'd be further along by now. I thought we'd be closer to the kingdom here on earth by now. I thought we'd see more heaven on earth. I thought we'd see the kingdom come by now. But I look around, and again, I'm just being honest here, and, and I get extremely discouraged. And because of course there's good st- stuff happening, and all over the world there's good stuff happening. But then I then I read the comment section of Twitter, or, or I read news headlines, and I just reflect on my own life, and I think, God, you've promised to bring me to completion. You've promised to make the world new. When, when am I going to be there? When are we going to be there? And I think about people I know, and the promises that they've waited for, and the prayers that they've prayed for weeks or months, maybe even years or decades. I know people who've been waiting for God to fulfill a promise longer than I've even been alive. And I know that has to get discouraging over time. But what what this story teaches us, what God's faithfulness over centuries teaches us, is something about God's patience, but it builds in us a faith for his yet unfulfilled promises. I read about his faithfulness. I read about how he uses people and situations through time and in ways that we would never expect. And I have to believe God is doing something that I don't see. God's working on a different timeline and he will be faithful to his promise. Let's pray.